this whole idea of communion or breaking bread or the Lord's Supper or the table, there are different terms used for it. just want to talk about that. And uh, we find it in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, where it talks about four things that the early church practiced. And the four things that the early church practiced were the apostles' teaching, as in the teaching. Then uh, they practiced fellowship, as in the ability to one another, to care for one another. Then they practiced prayers, different kinds of prayers. And then they practiced the breaking of bread. And so I want to talk about the breaking of bread. And the strange thing was that the church rapidly expanded when people practiced these four things. It, it was practiced in a very simple setting. And the church rapidly expanded. What was the simple setting that this was practiced in? It was practiced around an evening meal. I wish we could take church back to evening where we could have a meal. It was always a simple setting in which the church expanded. The more complicated it gets, the more difficult it is to move. Simple meeting of believers around an evening meal, celebrating their new life, inviting friends, inviting co-workers, inviting relatives. That's how it started. And then it got really complicated because from every day uh, that they used to meet, and when they say every day, it doesn't mean that they met every day. It meant they could meet any time and they would sit around the meal and then they would go about practicing these things. Prayers, apostolic teaching, uh, fellowship, breaking of bread. And then at some point after Nero and other Roman emperors began to persecute Christianity, uh, and because of the persecution when people were dispersed to different corners of the Roman Empire, it went from an evening meal to the first day of the week. And you read that in Acts 20, uh, verse 7 to 11. It talks about how they began to meet first day of the week because they were now scattered. They were no longer in Jerusalem, that uh, Jewish enclave where uh, it was normal to practice these things. Now they were spread to the four corners of the Roman Empire, and so they would meet on the first day of the week. And whenever communion or breaking of bread or whatever you want to call it was practiced, uh, it was always part of a festive meal. They used to call it the love feast, as in they would have this table set with food on it, it would be a festive meal, and during the meal either, uh, sometimes before the meal they would break bread, and then after the meal they would have the cup. That's how it started. Every time bread was broken and the cup was taken part of, it was in a festive meal. Then at some point, it became like a separate section. The meal would be the meal, and then it became a separate section. And then in the 4th century, the strangest thing happened. Once Constantine became king, he banned or prohibited meals from being part of the function. He said, you cannot have meals anymore. You want to do this communion thing, do it separately. It cannot be part of the meal. Till then, it was called the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, communion, whatever you want to call it. It was only in the 4th century that the meal was prohibited, saying you cannot have it as part of the meal. And then it became a ritual. And it became a ritual 
that was only conducted by the priest. So it moved from a community event to a priestly ritual participated by the congregation at a distance in a very somber setting which had to be glum and which contained in it awe and dread because by then John Calvin had introduced this thought that when you come to partake of this meal, you have to begin to examine yourself before you partake in it. And with that came awe and dread. There was an awe as in, oh shuck, this has to be approached carefully. There was a dread as in, oh shuck, we better not partake in this meal because what if we have sin? And you can see the slow dismantling of what God had intended. What a shame, eh? But we have the privilege of recapturing the essence because of what the word of God says and because of the history that has now been written and because we are small enough and dumb enough to practice. We have to be simple to practice. Why was the meal so important to the core identity of the early church? Why was this meal? And when I say meal, uh, when we use the word meal, it, it comes up with this tray on which someone serves serve some sloppy mashed potatoes and maybe some turkey meat. But when I talk about the meal, I'm talking about the whole idea of it being a table set where we partook of the bread and the cup. So when I say meal, that's what I mean. What was, why was the meal so important to the core identity of the early church? First, the meal visualized the church as a family gathered around a table which takes us back to this, the simplicity of church in those days and uh, at the we can we must never forget that the social structure or DNA of the church is that of a house. We cannot forget this. We didn't come up with this. Christ instituted it. Doesn't matter how modern we get, how busy we get, how desperately our kids must sleep at 7 p.m. Otherwise, they'll turn out to be murderers. This is not true. The things we've come up with that make us a certain way and that prevent us from living a certain other way. When I was listening to what Jane was singing, and one of the things she was singing is, Oh God, it is not enough that we uh, know you. It is, it is important that we see things the way you see them. One of the things Jesus saw about the church right off the bat was the church must be or must have the social structure or DNA of a household or a family. That is why then Paul goes on to say, treat older women as mothers, treat younger, younger women as sisters, treat older men as elder brothers, treat younger men as younger brothers, uh, treat uh, older men as fathers, respect the older ones. Um, let there be elders, deacons, pastors, deal with it this way, deal with servants this way, deal with pastors this way. He had this entire section devoted to how does a household function. And in those days, that was how it functioned. So the social structure or DNA of the church is that of a household. So that was one reason the meal was so important, because the meal visualized the church 
as a family of God. If you go to 1 Timothy 3.15, it actually says that the church is a household. That the church is a household. Secondly, when you gather around a meal, it brought a natural friendship between people. It's very hard to sit next to someone for three hours and uh, not talk to them while you're eating. Very difficult. This isn't new. It's been going on in every culture for ages. Very difficult to sit. So the second reason it was so important to the core identity of the early church was because it, the, uh, it brought a natural friendship uh, into the shape of the meeting. It brought a... Because right now, we can sit where we are and not have to worry about anybody else on your right or left other than the ones in your pew. The third reason was uh, every time they partook of the bread and the cup, they were proclaiming the death of Christ. So the, 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 the idea of the bread and the cup allowed them to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ at the heart of every meeting. At the heart of every meeting, there was this sacrament that they partook in, which was the bread and the cup. And that allowed them to talk about what Christ did. That the bread represents his body, which was broken and was put on a cross for the payment of your sins and that his blood was shed so that by his blood now life was exchanged by life one man was put on the cross so that you may be set free so it was part of every meeting christ's good news would be proclaimed fourthly it began to form people into a good work community as in now that they began to gather together as a people they would watch out look out for others there would be poor that would be taken care of there would be uh, ones who did not have food that would be taken care of there would be other people in churches that were hit by famines and earthquakes that would be taken care of people would sit with each other and eat and they would find out that our ah, shucks betty does not uh, have uh, a car this week so while i'm having supper i say hey betty you can use my car then you find out that someone else uh, has their mother coming over and that uh, they're at work and someone needs to pick the mother up and take care of her so someone goes and picks the mother up then you find out that someone is not well and uh, 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 doesn't have anybody to cook so someone goes and cook food for them it became a good works community it became a benefactor community because now that you were gathered around the table problems became real where do we get a time to discuss problems in a two-hour service where I have only 40 minutes left? It is a very deliberate thing, this meal. We must recapture these things. One of the ways to recapture these things is to continue to build this beautiful thing called household. It is not some newfangled idea. It goes back way, way back into the heart of God. 
It's not a movement. Embrace it, eh? Because when you embrace it, you're embracing a thought or a pattern from the heart of God. It is not a new church growth movement. Fifthly, it was simple and universal. It was simple and it was universal. Meaning, is there a culture that does not eat together? The way they eat may differ. You go to the Middle East and there'll be this huge uh, dekti. Uh, dekti is a Greek word for this huge vessel. So there'd be this huge vessel and people would get, sit around it and they would break bread and they would dip and eat together. It, uh, so that was in the Middle East. You go to Japan and there might be a tea ceremony. You come to Vancouver and you might have these funny looking stainless steel things that you're supposed to jab things at and put in your mouth. I'm talking about a fork and a spoon and a knife. The point is, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how you do it. It is simple and universal to sit around a table. It is the nature of a family. And God calls himself a father and he calls the church a family. And if we actually just give it lip service, then we're doing God a disservice. The other thing it did, this kind of a gathering where it was a meal, is it broke the clergy laity divide. Where no longer was it some priest in a funny looking collar with a thing on his head, breaking bread and giving it out to people. Now it was people in a home sitting around and breaking bread and talking. It destroyed the clergy laity division, which is why it had to be brought back 400 in, 400 in the 4th century, because they wanted clergy and laity. And that destroyed so many things in the church. This communion thing, even today in Protestant circles and in Catholic circles, what do we say? That only the priest or the pastor can distribute it. Really? What about the common priesthood of believers? You see, why you should be angry about because it's dismantling something that Christ built. This meal is far more important than we really give it credit for. And that is why it was one of the four main things that the early church practiced and they spread rapidly. Use the ingredients that God gives in building his bride and it will work. Sixthly, it promoted, uh, I, I hate using this word, but you'll understand what I'm trying to say. It promoted networking with visitors. Now you could invite them for a meal. You didn't have to invite people to this building called the church, and you never know what's happening inside. You could invite them home. And in the, in, in the presence of a natural home, people would eat and drink. Stories would be told. And in the process of the story, because everybody has a story, there would be problems and then there would be a savior. What a beautiful thing, eh? Everybody comes with problems, everybody comes with a story, and everybody then has the ability and the opportunity to meet someone called Christ, who is savior between be saved and rescued. And this is what they all look like. For the first 200 years of the church, this is what it look like and they multiplied around the world and the multiplication any questions? questions? 
We cannot create that in a large place like this with two hours where you're not supposed to let any crumb hit the floor because this is holy ground. Pun intended. But we can't do it in house. Build them right. I say to the leaders of the household, take this to heart, practice this with the kind of passion that it must be practiced with, not as a ritual, because this thing can become a ritual. It had such great meaning. It was so intense. It was so broad-minded of God. So the breaking of bread is a sacrament. It's not a word we use often, or I don't know when was the last time you used the word sacrament. But the moment you need, use the word sacrament, it means that it announces divine truth and it imparts divine grace. The idea of sacrament is if something is a sacrament, it's more than a ritual. A ritual will not impart divine grace and a ritual may not be based on divine truth. But a sacrament, and there are only two sacraments in Christianity, baptism and communion. A sacrament imparts divine grace and it um, is based on divine truth or it announces divine truth, it imparts divine grace. And this sacrament was actually instituted in Egypt at the time of Passover. And so what does this breaking of bread do for a person? One, if, if some churches say that if you haven't received Jesus Christ in your life, you should not take part in the bread and cup. Here, we don't say that because of the simple reason that you... If you come and you want to partake, you can partake. But if you understand the meaning, then what you partake in becomes more meaning. Otherwise, just a Christian tradition that is meaningless that you partake. So, here are some of the things that... Um, uh, this is the grace imparted to us when we partake of... One, it distinguishes you. as a people of God. Distinguishes you as a people of God. Baptism and communion distinguishes you as a people of God. When you partake in it, you, you, you are saying that this is a practice of the culture of Jesus Christ, where we sit together to partake of the bread and the cup of grape juice to say that this is his body broken for us, this is the blood that he shed. It becomes a cultural mark. In, in uh, Hebrews 11.28, it says that when the Passover was instituted in Egypt and, uh, uh, and Israel left Egypt, they had this meal. And it says that it distinguished them in Hebrews 11.28 as the firstborn of God as compared to the firstborn of Egypt. So there's a distinction. There's a distinction. Wear it proudly, eh? Wear it proudly. I'm so, so glad sometimes to go with my Canadian passport and uh, place it on a desk knowing that it'll grant me immediate access. Where certain other passports are not allowed, the Canadian passport is almost always allowed. I think the only passport that is allowed more than Canadian passport is a Japanese one. Wear it with pride. Wear this thing called breaking of bread as, a, 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 as something that is very true to your culture if you are part of this culture called the people of Christ. So every time we partake in it, 
Secondly, it judges the gods and diseases of Egypt. It judges, it judges the gods and diseases of Egypt. I'm not talking about Egypt as a nation. I'm talking about what happened in Egypt in the Old Testament. It judges the gods and the diseases of Egypt. If you go to Numbers 33, verse 4, it talks about the gods of Egypt being judged. Let me just go through these scriptures. Numbers 33, verse 4. Verse 33, verse 4. Numbers 33 verse 4. The Israelites set out from Ramesses on the 15th day of the first month, the day after Passover. They marched out boldly in full view of the Egyptians who were burying all their firstborn. The Lord had struck down among them. For the Lord had brought judgment upon the Egyptian God. Um, how, how was it judgment upon the Egyptian God? I think we've talked about this in a sermon earlier. When? There were different gods in Egypt. Eh? There was... Um, Ra, sun god. What happened? A plague hit Egypt where the sun was blotted out. There was Isis who was god of cattle. What happened? Cattle began to die because of one plague. There was a Nile which was supposed to be a sacred river what happened that the river turned into blood every one of those plagues that happened in Egypt was a judgment of an Egyptian God and finally the ultimate judgment was Pharaoh himself who is supposed to be God to Egypt and his firstborn Pharaoh said I will destroy you instead Every God of Egypt was judged. Another verse is in Exodus 12, 12. Exodus 12, 12. Exodus 12. And here's what it says in Exodus 12, 12. On the same night I will pass through Egypt, strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I'll bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. Again, the idea of God of Egypt. Isaiah 19, 1. Isaiah 19, 1. Is there an oracle of God concerning Egypt? See the Lord rides on a swift cloud and is coming to Egypt. The idols of Egypt tremble before him, and the hearts of the Egypt melt within him. So, why are we talking about the judgment of the gods of Egypt? Guys, at the end of the day, when we use the word gods of Egypt, Egypt today means any form of bondage. Any form of bondage where your backs are striped open, you are put to hard labor, you are supposed to build someone else's pyramid, you die so that someone else prospers. The idea of bondage is what we are talking about when we talk about Egypt. And one of the things that happens when we partake of this sacrament or this idea of the bread and the cup is that every time we practice it, know that this truth and this grace is imparted to us, that I now judge the gods of Egypt, the demonic forces, the satanic forces, the spiritual forces that are against you. Every time you practice this sacrament that I, Christ, ordain, I will judge the satanic realm, the spirit realm, the demonic realm 
that is affecting you. And by God, if you haven't seen the demonic realm, come on a trip with me. These are evil spirits that destroy people, that cause three-year-olds to be molested and raped. That cause wars, that ravage people, that destroy them from the inside, that contort their faces, that make them right like serpents. I'm telling you this because it is so easy to think that realm does not exist. And I'm not saying this to you because you may have been aware of it, but people will listen to this message and let no one think that there is no such realm because there is a realm like that and there are people here that have dealt with it. And God is saying, every time you practice this sacrament, I will judge those. Because when my son died on the cross, he dismantled that entire realm. So when we practice this, it ain't no ordinary thing, man. Because every time we practice this, we are repeating Colossians 2.15, which says that Jesus Christ made a public spectacle of the devil. That he disarmed the devil. That he destroyed the realm of the satanic. That he will one day crush him completely under our feet. That Jesus Christ, the son of God, came down to the earth in flesh to destroy the works of the devil. That he has given his authority over all the power of the enemy to trample over serpents and scorpions and demons. And that no harm by any means shall come to me. This is the kind of church that to rise up so that people in bondage can be set free. The other thing this sacrament does, we take part of it. What is the sacrament? The sacrament is the practice that imparts grace and that announces truth. The, the other thing that we, um, happens when we practice the sacrament is that we declare the immunity that is conferred upon. We declare the immunity that is conferred upon us. Isaiah 31 verse 5. Isaiah 31 verse 5. It says in Isaiah 31 verse 5, this is what the Lord says. Like birds hovering overhead, the Lord Almighty will shield Jerusalem. He will shield it and deliver it. He will pass over it and he will rescue it. It was a scripture that was spoken over at Passover. That passing, the, the, the whole idea of uh, uh, the word Passover is that when the destroyer comes, he will pass over and you will not be judged. There's an immunity that is conferred to you when you partake in it. An immunity that is conferred. Just think of the benefits, eh? That aside, it publishes the victory of Christ again and again and again. Guys, Jesus lived publicly. He's a recorded historical figure. There's evidence, like ridiculous evidence for it. He died publicly. There is recorded historical evidence for that. He rose publicly. And he was seen by people publicly. And that's been recorded too. And so everything Jesus does was done publicly. And so every time we partake of this and may it not be hidden within the confines of this church, may you practice it in your homes when you meet with visitors and uh, people who come to your homes. May it be declared that Jesus Christ died and rose again publicly and we speak of it publicly. We speak of it publicly. To practice this inside the church and never express it outside, renders it a useless ritual not a useless ritual it renders it a ritual every time we practice this 
what are we saying we are saying that satan you are judged and that christ rose again and therefore anybody who believes jesus christ will rise again if he rose so will i i love that song so will i if he rose from the dead so will i Thirty one percent. Yep. Which yeah, in an unworthy man. So the context of First Corinthians eleven is these guys used to come around for this amazing meal that they used to have in the church in Corinth. And they would eat together and during the meal, people would take the bread and the cup. But then there were some guys who began to divide the church into the rich and the poor. And the rich would come and, for the lack of a better word, would eat the KFC and the Baconator and the Big Mac. And after eating that, the poor would be given uh, uh, bread sticks and uh, and power crowd um, breadstick salad and sauerkraut would be given to the poor and so now paul is challenging them saying what's wrong with you guys is christ divided why is it that when you come together and he uses the word when you come together in verse 18 verse 31 and verse 20 uh, verse 18 20 and 23 he says when you come together when you come together and the whole idea was, guys, don't you know that you're supposed to come together as a family? Why is it then you're dividing yourself? Is Christ divided? And if you continue this way, in discriminating one from the other, the poor from the rich, the higher from the lower, then know this, that some of you will fall sick, some of you will die. And so it was in the context of that that he says, therefore now examine yourself. Therefore now examine yourself. See how you're doing with your neighbor, whether you're discriminating on the basis of color, caste, creed, religion, uh, rich, poor, strata in society, nationality, what basis are you discriminating on? Because if you do, then church, be careful, because some of you will be missing next Sunday. Crazy, eh? Yeah. Because it's been so... Um, so, so We've, we've manufactured something completely different where we say now that uh, examine yourself as make sure there's no sin in you. And that puts such fear into a table that is supposed to be full of grace. And by the way, if I have a problem with you, I'm not supposed to sort it out just before communion because it won't get sorted out before communion. It might take five days because my problem with you is big. So you can't go up to someone and say, hey, Betty, I'm really sorry for what I did last Can you forgive me? What choice does she have? I forgive you. Because she has to take part in communion too. That ain't dealing with it. That is... The intent of the heart should be very... You and I need to talk about stuff. So... Then it might take more of... Then if it doesn't get involved, it might have... 
hear anything. Because the easiest thing to do in Christianity is to sweep dust under. We've become experts. So, at this table, three things I want to point out and we learn. One is we eat with we eat with him. I love this part, eh? We eat with him. Exodus 24, verse 9 to 11. Moses takes 70 others with him. They go up Mount Sinai. And it says that there was, under the feet of God, was something like lapis lazuli. Some blue kind of a, a sense under his feet. And uh, it says that these 70 and Moses and Aaron ate and drank with God. They ate and drank. God's always had this desire when it comes to this meal. He's always had this desire. And if he has a desire, then know that he fulfills the desire with his presence by the Holy Spirit. Every time a household or Acts 29 breaks bread, know that he desires to be amongst us, that he walks amongst the lampstand. That he desires to be amongst us and his presence is known. We don't recognize this, eh? Because if we only have two minutes for this, so we get this done. Because we've got other more important things to go about. But every time we partake of it, we've got to look at history. Acts 24. He turned up with his presence. Luke chapter 24, verse 30 and 31. Um, I've longed to eat this... Sorry, Luke 24. Uh, what does it say? I've longed to eat this meal with you. And he eats in their presence. Luke, uh, uh, John 21, 12 and 13. Jesus was walking at the beach. And he says, hey boys, you got any fish? And the boy, uh, they've just got fish. They bring it on shore. He's already got a fire going. And he breaks bread with them. Again in Luke chapter 24 or 25. He's walking down the road to Emmaus. And there's two guys who sing, did you hear Jesus has died? And they cannot recognize that Jesus is walking with them. And he goes with them and they say, can you stay with us? Can you stay with us tonight? And he says, okay. And they settle down in a room and he, they uh, decide to have dinner. And during dinner, he takes the bread and he breaks it. And immediately they recognize him. This Jesus Christ desires and longs to be in our midst every time this is broken. We must take time to recognize his presence and where his presence is there is life life zest space healing strength all these things are relief but we don't have time i think after every communion we should sing the song god was here and i did not know it that's what we should sing but we will not be singing it because we'll be thinking different Trust his desire and therefore his presence by the Spirit as we gather around the table. Trust, recognize his desire to be present amongst his people and trust that because this is a sacrament that imparts grace, that he enjoys being amongst the people who are recognized. You've got to take time. That's why we won't be doing this. I don't want to rush this. Every blooming church service we rush. We'll do it next week when we go down for a meal after the aid. 
while we are eating, we'll practice. And the emphasis was always when you come together. Guys, when you come together. Guys, when you come together. Because anytime you sit around a table to have a meal, you usually want intimacy, companionship, and affect around the table. You know, my dad's place and my mom's place. And I used to visit uh, their home, or visit my relatives. At my dad's place, there would be a bell. They'd ring the blooming bell, and everybody had to. It, it felt like. I was part of the one trap family. Uh, they would ring the bell and everyone had to turn up at the table and sit down. And then the head honcho, my, my uncle would pray. Then we would eat and he would have to take stuff first. Then there would be a pecking order and you would be caught. And it was so well run. You would think, what an amazing family. And then there was my mom. There would be arguments. You were just grateful that there were no paratas flying from one end to the other that people were throwing at each other. But it used to be so lively. I would look forward to eating at my mom's uh, uh, dad's, my mom's parents. Because they, uh, they would be crying, they would be laughing, there would be uh, no bell. Uh, it, it was so much fun. It was real. And then there was my dad's place, which was like, uh, that's when I decided I'm not going to go join the army because it must be. So um, the point is, grow in the strong bond of affection, intimacy, and companionship with him. And with him. second thing is, we eat with him. We eat often. Eat often. As in, he keeps saying, eh, that I am the bread of life. And people got put off with this. When he makes this statement in John chapter 6, verse 48, 50, Jesus almost deliberately puts them off. Because he says, if you do not eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot be a part of me. And guys started reeling back saying, this is like cannibalism. What are you suggesting that we eat your flesh and drink your blood? That's literally what they thought and what they said. And he deliberately said it because what's his intent? His intent is, hey guys, sit with me at this table. And take off my life and only then will your life be sustained. Let's put it this way. I've written this. We eat and drink. We eat and drink. That is we take into our life what happened on the cross by faith this is what we do when we partake this guys it's very every word here is so important we eat and drink if we were uh, practicing the breaking of bread today we would eat and drink and what would we be doing we would be taking into our lives what happened on the cross and we are taking into our lives what happened on the cross what happened on the cross a man was put to death for what reason so that my sins may be forgiven what happened on the cross a man was put to death for what reason that i may become his father's son what happened on the cross a man was put to death for what reason that he would rise again and so that one day when i believe in him, i would rise again what happened on the cross a man was put to death 
What, for what reason? His back was striped for my healing. What happened on the cross? A man was put to death. And it goes on and on and on and on and on. And therefore, when I eat and drink, I take into my life what happened on the cross, but I do it by faith. It is one thing to participate in this meal to remember and sit down. It is another thing to participate in this meal to remember and rise up in faith because it is finished. Take into our lives what has happened on the cross. Eat of my flesh, drink of my blood. If you do not eat of my flesh and do not drink of my blood, you cannot be part of my life. What is he saying? Come guys, sit at this table. Trust me to be your life-giving and life-sustaining food and drink. Eat of me. And one of the ways we feed on God is by feeding on his word. To remember and sit down doesn't require faith. To remember and rise up is active faith. Last one. We eat for him. Eat for him. Eat for him. As in, the essence of this meal is proclamation, not privacy. Proclamation, not privacy. That's the essence of We are not eating this thing. Me and my God, me alone. This play of music, the piano. That's good. But this meal is not about privacy. It's about We eat for him. The supper proclaimed. This meal proclaims, and faith comes by hearing and seeing and tasting. This is why it is critical that when we partake in this meal, that we declare. That we declare. Others here, others here. Uh, when you say, as I partake in this meal, I trust that what was accomplished on the cross, I take it into my life, and I trust for the healing of my body. And people hear it. This supper proclaims. And because it proclaims, faith comes by hearing, tasting, and seeing what is happening. Do you see how critical it is to the life of a church? Do you see how it is important to practice this not once a month? Do you see why it must be practiced in the household? Paul puts it this way. 1 Corinthians 2.2. 2, and that's what this, message, this breaking of bread is actually. Paul says, I did not want to know anything. I just wanted to know one thing, who he is and what he did. Christ crucified. 1 Corinthians 2. Who he is, what he did. Christ crucified. Who he is, what he did. Christ crucified. And then in 1 Corinthians 22, he says, I realize that this is a message I have to go out with. So one, we recognize and then we proclaim. We eat for him. And what are we proclaiming? That which will be a stumbling block to the Jew. And what to the Greek? Foolishness to the Greek. But to those that are called, it is the power of God, it's the wisdom of God, it's the salvation of God. Every time we practice this, we must eat of this and then go out because we eat for him. We eat with him, we eat of him, we eat for him. You know, in the Old Testament, they used to have this bread called showbread. It's in Leviticus 24. They would make this bread and they would have 12 loaves put before the Lord in rows. And another word for showbread was the bread of presence. 
the bread of presence. And the word presence always comes from this word called panim, which means face to face. As in, this bread would remind God. And the whole idea of this is, as we partake in this, we are reminding God of two things. That he is with us and we are with him. He now says, you are my portion. And we say to him, you are our portion. And the priests could go into the sanctuary and partake of this bread. Nobody else could eat it. Only the priests could go and eat it. And when they ate it, they ate it on behalf of the congregation. And that's what we're doing. We eat of this bread. Why? On the behalf of a people that now need to be fed. Ryan, can you pull out the last verse of the song, uh, I Then Shall Live? I will conclude. Next week, when we partake in communion, this week, if you're meeting as a house, remember the importance of ministers of reconciliation we have become. We're not ministers who go to the sanctuary, eat it on behalf of the people. We are ministers who now eat it and then become ambassadors of reconciliation. Ministers of reconciliation. Um, can you play a B? Quickly, quickly, morning. Sorry. Just came. Chill. Quick. Young man. D. D as in Del. Your kingdom come around and through. And in me, your power and glory, let them shine through me. Your hallowed name, oh may I bear with honor. And may your living kingdom come in me. The bread of life, oh, may I share with honor, and may you feed a hungry world through me. One last time. Your kingdom come around and through and in me. Your power and glory, let them shine through me. Your hallowed name, oh may I bear with honor. And may your living kingdom come in me. The bread of life. Oh, may I share with honor, and may you feed a hungry world through me. Grant this verse to us for your name's sake, Jesus' name. Amen. Bless you guys. See you next Sunday. If you need prayer, Jeevan, Derek, Joan, Sue will be up here.
Um, and if you need prayer, feel free to come up and they'll pray for any need you have. Thank you guys. Say hi to Doug before you go.